Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. <laughs> on your job, Shannon. in your car, I'm yeah. Melissa. Well, it might not be good to listen on your job, but because of jog, your jog, jog. Oh, jog. Yes. I, okay. And some jobs you can listen to podcasts. It ha- mine would have to be so mindless that I wasn't doing anything but cutting grass or something. <laughs> not that that's mindless, but if you're just going up and down. So, good morning from Shannon and Melissa. And we hope you're listening, whatever you're doing. Um, and we appreciate you listening. And the reason I couldn't do it on a job is because I can't do two things at once. So <laughs> I couldn't listen and know what was going on and do my job at the same time. But today we're going to cover the Moore's murderers, Myra Henley and Ian Brady. And say hello, Melissa. I don't I think, think hey, I did. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you'd say Then hello. we started talking about mindless jobs. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, a lot of people have mindless jobs. Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of people don't have jobs. So we need you to get back out because we're trying to buy supplies and we hope you um, have been able, if you're looking for one, to find one, but plenty of jobs available. Yes, definitely. And then listen to us if you can, when you get one. So today we're talking about the Moore's murders and Myra Henley is, um, the female of the two and Ian Brady would be the male and the crimes occurred between July 1963 and October 1965 in the area of Manchester, England. Um, the press labeled Myra as the most evil woman in Britain, and that was in quotes. So um, a title well-deserved as the victims were five children between the ages of 10 and 17. Myra was helped by her boyfriend, Ian Brady. Um, so we're going to start with the background and Melissa always does a lot of the research for these stories to which I am grateful. And I didn't know Myra was seen as the most evil woman, but we had, were just discussing how. I, I think she was in the press more and she did a lot of things to keep herself in the news and being that the crimes were against children and it's just, she, everyone hated her. Um, but in, you'll learn that I think between the two of them, I think Ian was one of the worst yeah. ones. Yeah. So we're going to get into the story now and, and see what you guys think at the end of the story. Um, I know in the, I did end up watching a little, um, documentary and she was always dressed up and kind of like in a lot of pictures oh, yeah, and, and had, things had like a little that. dog with her. Yeah. Puppet. So she was, um, didn't mind the spotlight, of course. Um, so let's talk about the background. Ian Duncan Stewart was born on January the 2nd, 1938 in Glasgow, Scotland. Mm -hmm. His mother, Margaret Stewart at the time was just 28 and unmarried. Um, and she was also a waitress. She struggled and was unable to give Ian the proper care that he needed. So she turned him over to a local couple who had four children already. He took their name and became Ian Sloan. His mother still visited Ian throughout his childhood. That's cool that she was able to do that. Um, Ian did develop some disturbing behaviors as a child that should have set off all kinds of red flags. He had a habit of torturing animals, uh, including but not limited to 
setting a dog on fire. Yeah. And decapitating a cat. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that is total torture. That's terrible. He eventually lands a spot at the Shawlands Academy, which is a school for above average students. There he got into trouble twice for house breaking. Breaking and entering house breaking. Okay. <laughs> so that's how they word it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he quits the academy at just 15 and travels around taking up odd jobs just to get by. Ian was a tea boy for a local shipyard for a couple of months before moving on to become a messenger for a butcher shop. So they drink a lot of tea over there. So I guess that would be what the <laughs> well, tea boy. Well, his mom was a tea waitress. A tea waitress. So, so I bet they had some tea and biscuits maybe. Yeah. Um, Ian had a girlfriend, but it ended when she visited a dance with another boy. And Ian pulled a knife on her. Um, and he also confronted her about it. And I guess, did he confront the other boy? I don't think so. Okay. So it was just against her. By the time he was 17, he was placed on probation and forced to live back with his mother, Margaret. She had gotten married by then, so he changed his name to Ian Brady. His stepfather was a fruit vendor, so Ian took up work with him. Okay, so poor guy. He's already he's been, been yeah, shifted around, around, changed his name, um, had to change it three times or yeah. two, but it, yeah, um, Wow, and then he went. Got so I guess schools breaking and yeah. entering. So I guess the family that took him in just couldn't handle him. So that's why he had to go back with his mother. And of course, him being of an age that he could work, um, she probably didn't mind him coming back. It wasn't long before he was caught trying to steal and landed himself into a um, juvenile facility called a Borstal. Once he got out, he did some more job hopping. Before January of 1959. He started a clerical job at a wholesale, wholesale chemical distribution company. There, he was described as being quiet, punctual, which I am not, unless I can tell you, <laughs> but short-tempered. His co-workers had no idea how he would become half of this awful crime duo. So, even though he was quiet and punctual, but short-tempered, they didn't think he would... No, but it's yeah. always the quiet ones in the laundry you gotta watch yeah, out for yeah. sometimes. And yeah, definitely. But he job hopped often and couldn't um, stay in one place, but this is where he kind of settled. So, yeah. So, hey, you know what? I'm never gonna be uh, thought of it. I won't do crime, but I'm not punctual and I'm not quiet. So, no, see, the quiet good. ones, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to take a look at Myra Henley. She was born on July the 23rd, 1942 in Crump She didn't have an awesome childhood either. Nellie and Bob Henley, her parents, they used to beat her on a regular basis. Yes. Thank you. Um, the house was run down that she lived in and she slept on a twin mattress on the floor beside her parents' double bed. Things got worse for her once her sister Maureen was born in August of 1946. To take care of the new baby, Myra was sent to live with her grandmother, um, yeah. who stayed close by. So, no room for two. So, they oh, had the to take care of the baby. Along. All right. So, Myra went to grandma. Myra's dad, Bob, was an alcoholic and a really tough guy. He served in the parachute regiment with the government. 
He taught Myra to fight, and she was expected to be able to stand up for herself. Wow. He sounds like he wasn't that great of a guy. Which I agree, you should be able to stand up for yourself. I do too, yes. I do. But not to this extent. Well, it sounds like he beat her, so there was a difference in teaching how to stand up for yourself, and there was a fine line there that sounds like was crossed. When Myra was eight, um, she bullied... She, she was, was bullied, bullied by a schoolboy. He scratched her face hard enough to draw blood. So she ran home crying. And instead of being conf- comforted and helped, she was threatened. Her father told her if she didn't retaliate, he would, quote, leather her. I guess that's what yep. the belt. Yep. To make her father happy and avoid another beating, she tracked the boy down and beat him up. Wow. She would write later about the incident as a, as a quote, eight years old, I'd scored my first victory, end quote. Wow. Her dad really yeah. turned her, didn't, didn't he? Wow. So that starts a pattern. Yep. So here goes her pattern. She was not only used to violence at home, but now she was rewarded for it outside of the house. Yeah, I bet. Because, I mean, she it felt good to have that power. Which me and Melissa were talking earlier, talking about the roles of power in this relationship. One of her good friends was Michael Higgins. When they were around 13, he invited Myra to go swimming for the afternoon. She decided to do something else and declined. Michael ended up drowning. Hmm. Myra was a good swimmer and kind of blamed herself for not being there to help. Shortly after, she started visiting the Catholic Church and studied to become a member. She actually okay. raised money for his wreath for his memorial service, and like that really. Oh, wow! So she did have a her. soft like, heart. Like I don't think that's when we cover everything that's happened. I, I don't think she was quite the evilest gotcha. woman in, the, in Britain. Okay, because she had a soft heart for him. Gotcha. She um she also bounced around jobs, losing one for absenteeism. Um, just six months in. Eventually, she found herself working for Millwards, a chemical distribution company where Ian Brady caught her eye. So that's so how that's, they met. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, soon, Myra had become obsessed with Ian and began writing about him in her journal. On December 22nd, Ian finally asked her out on a date, and the pair began to spend a lot of time together. Their dates had their own pattern. It would start with a rated X movie and then back to Myra's house for some German wine. Ian would then give Myra reading material to study. He loved to read books about the Nazis and the crimes they committed. Which wow. I don't know if your date, my dates never ended up in homework. Here, read this. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been the end of it because I didn't like reading. And she knew he had a criminal history. Like he had a background he had been to, uh, and she didn't care. I guess that. I don't know. Might have intrigued her. Yeah, intrigued her. Um, Let's see. I lost my place, guys. Give me a second. Myra soon started to change her appearance to be more like the perfect person in those readings. Okay, so she was trying to be like, gotcha. She bleached her hair blonde and started wearing red lipstick. She took it further and changed the way she dressed. She started wearing high boots, short skirts, and leather jackets. Oh, wow. <laughs> Very um, intrigued by what she read, evidently. Well, opposite of what her normal personality would, would have you been. You know, as quiet and not. Yeah. 
They would travel to the library and check out books on crime and torture. Together, they visited the shooting ranges. Myra wanted to join a pistol club, but she was rejected due to her inability to hit a target. She's a bad shot. <laughs> so she went from joining the Catholic Church to joining mm -hmm. a pistol club. Trying to join the pistol club, yeah. She did purchase some weapons from members of the club. I guess so she could practice. When Myra appealed for her parole, this is what she had to say about her relationship with Ian. Quote, Within months, he had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. End quote. Wow. So now that these two awful people have joined <laughs> forces, we can talk about how they tried to commit the perfect crime which I think is the goal of all criminals in some type of fashion. Um, and they're always trying to not get caught. I mean, yeah, that is, the, that is the goal if you're going <clears> to <throat> lead a life of crime. Yes, work hard not to get caught. July the 12th, 1963, they decided it was time. <laughs> Excuse For me. some water. Yes, I need to drink a little bit of water. Mm. So Myra rented a van and would drive around town looking for a victim with Ian following behind on his motorcycle. They had a system. When Ian would find a victim, he would flash his lights, and that sing signaled Myra to pull over. They were driving down Gorton Lane, and Ian flashed his lights as they passed a young girl. Myra did not follow their plan and stop, only because she recognized the girl as her eight-year-old neighbor. See, so I don't really think... <clears throat> Just her alone would have done Do you think all this stuff. That she cared about her or that she thought we might get caught if we take the neighbor? Well, you never know. May, well, maybe a little bit of both. It was said that she, eight year old, was a little <coughs> young for, for her. Yeah. And plus, it was her people. mom's, it was her mom's friend. Like she recognized mm. her as her mom's friend and okay. as her neighbor. So it would probably be tied back yeah. to them re relatively easily. So they keep driving around. Um, and 7.30 p.m. on Froxmoor Street, Ian signals again, once seeing 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Myra stopped and offered her a ride. Once she was inside, she recognized her as a schoolmate of her younger sister, Maureen. Myra asked, if, um, asked her if she would ride out to the moor and help her look for a glove, and Pauline agreed. Once they were there, Ian pulled up in his motorcycle. Myra assured Pauline that he was there to help look as well. The moor was an area of open, uncultivated land, and it was often deserted. Okay. So that would make me really nervous if you brought me to this place and then somebody pulls up in a motorcycle and, oh, he's here to help. But do you think, because, you know, I don't know, I just sit there and think about my growing up days. If I went with a friend, and they may not have really been friends, but... You trust them. So this is what's scary to me is that this was her sister's friend and they she went. Um, but I still wouldn't like it, you know, if we're out there and mm -hmm. it seems kind of creepy and here comes this dude on a motorcycle. Um, and I couldn't have stolen his motorcycle because I would have fallen over with <laughs> poor balance. So I would always be, see, I'm always thinking of an escape route or how to defend myself. So Melissa knows that very well. <laughs> 
All right. So now let's see. According to Myra, Ian took Pauline out onto the moor to search for the glove and he returned 30 minutes later, but then he was alone. He then led Myra to a spot where Pauline was lying dead. Myra noted that her clothes were in disarray and she had been um, nearly decapitated. She asked Ian if he had raped her and his reply was in quotes, of course I did. He then retrieved a shovel he had hid in the area on a previous day and began to bury Pauline and Myra waited back in the van. Ian has a different account that placed Myra at the attack and she even participated in the assault itself. Man, these are some so, sick people. Yeah. And then you But he already had the shovel was already there. So he was you know planning. that this was pre yes. He was already planning it out. And she probably I don't know, I mean it doesn't tell us what they discussed before they went. I mean, you just don't know because I'm sure they discussed several things unless he just told her, you just do what I say. I mean, that could very well be possible. So, um, now it's November 23rd, 1963 and Ian selected his next victim. They were at a market where they saw 12 year old John Kilbreed or Kilbride. They told him that his parents might worry if he was out late, and they offered him a ride home along with a bottle of sherry. So once he was inside the car, Ian told him they would have to stop at his house to pick up the bottle of sherry. Ian then decided to detour to the moor to try and find an expensive glove that Myra had lost. Again with the glove. Okay, so... Let's go out to this deserted, hilly area that no one's around and help me find this expensive globe and this kid's 12 so y'all talk to your kids better. and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews not to get in cars with strangers at all and if your parents are gonna send a message it will be through somebody they know um I, yeah i tell my kids do not go with anybody and especially even if you know them real well there's we've got their cell phones there should be some point of contact nowadays um so this glove, man, I tell you, <laughs> it's been lost out there. The thing isn't expensive anymore. It's got to be, you know, ratty by now. Again, Myra waits in the car while Ian took off with John. And, of course, he assaulted him. And John tried to slit his throat, but ended up strangling him with a shoestring and burying him in a shallow grave, just like Pauline. Man, I really do not like these people. Yeah. June 16th, 1964, Myra asked Keith Bennett to help her load some boxes into her truck. He was just 12 years old and on the way to his grandmother's house. She offered to drive him there once the boxes were lo loaded. Ian was in the back of the car. She drove to a rest stop and Ian asked the boys for asked the boys help in finding that Lost that glove. Lost glove. <laughs> After about 30 minutes, Ian came back alone, carrying a shovel that he had previously hidden there for the occasion and said that he did the same thing to Keith as he had, did, had done to John. Next, they visited a fair on December the 26th, 1964, and found victim number four. They people watched until they found Leslie Ann Downey, who was all alone at just 10 years old. They dropped some shopping bags near her and pretended to have trouble carrying them all. They asked if she could help them load them in the car and then help get them into the house. Leslie agreed and got into the car with both Myra and Ian. Um, and I didn't know, I think this is the one I remember where the mom was being interviewed and just said that, you know, just a sweet girl. And I don't know, it was just so sad that, 
she didn't. I mean, come she was home just helping and, them carry bags yeah. to their car, which, which is helpful and the, I guess the right thing to do for someone who needs help. But why would they need help carrying them into their house once they got home? Don't yes. get in the vehicle. And unfortunately, <laughs> at ten, you're just like, oh yeah, and it's just sad. Um, so once they got her into the house, she was undressed and gagged. The couple then forced her to pose for some photographs before she was raped and also strangled with a piece of string. Myra stated that she went to draw a bath for Leslie and came back to find her dead at the hands of Ian. The next morning, they drove back to the moors and buried Leslie there with her clothes thrown at her feet. So that it kind of escalated. It's getting, yeah. getting worse. Yeah. So the last victim wasn't chosen until October of 1965. And yeah, you know, this is not that far back. I mean, 1965 is old to a lot of people, but it's still not for things like this to be happening. And, and it's still happening today. Yeah. And that's what just, it's worse, I think, now uh, with all the technology. But um, so in 1965, this last victim, they had almost made it a year without another killing. This Which time, is usually the opposite. Normally the times between killings get shorter as serial offenders progress but they had seemed to is that by being the opposite we, but we it could be we because really we don't know yeah that they might have done it and just didn't um so this time they drove to a nearby train station to select someone myra waited in the car and ian came back with edward edmonds who was 17 okay older yeah, he, he introduced myra to edward as his sister they drove back to the house where they all relaxed with a bottle of wine. Myra was told to go and fetch her brother and, or her brother-in-law, David Smith, to join them. David was Maureen's husband, and he also had a criminal record, but for the most part was nothing like Myra and Ian. Ian had struck up a friendship with Smith, and he wanted him to join in on the fun. How sick. Yeah. Myra told Smith to wait outside until he saw a flashing light and then it would be time to come in. Once he, once the time came, he knocked on the door. Ian answered and asked if he was there to collect the miniature wine bottles. He led David to the kitchen and left him there. A couple of minutes later, he heard a scream followed by the sound of a struggle. He heard Myra yell, Dave, help him. Once he ran into the room, he saw the boy Edward lying on the couch and Ian striking him with a hatchet. He watched him hit Edward on the side of the head and that stopped the screaming. Ian then took an electrical cord and wrapped it around his neck. During the struggle, Ian had sprained an ankle and David couldn't carry the body on his own, so they just wrapped it up and stuck it in the spare bedroom. David promised to help Ian take care of the body in the morning. Yeah, I don't think he knew what he was walking into. So then he should have like, just I don't walked think, back but, out and went but, to the police. But it would have been weird if I said, hey, come over to my house, but wait right here until we flash a light. Then it's okay for you to come inside. Yeah. I think was, I would have been like, eh, no, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. And then you were coming for the miniature wine bottles. Yeah, that's just a little odd. But I, I really don't think he, because what, what he did next, but I really don't think he knew that was going on or he expected that to happen. Okay, so we'll find out about that in just a second. Okay, so David said that he was going to come back in the morning to help with the body. Okay, 
So he got there about 3 a.m. Well, at home. So he, so he got home about 3 a.m. because he went straight home, got there about 3 a.m. and was shaken up about what he had just seen. So, um, and then what his sister-in-law's boyfriend had done, Maureen made him some tea, but he ended up throwing it up and told Maureen everything. As soon as it was daylight, he armed himself with a kitchen knife and a screwdriver and made his way to tele- to a telephone box and called the police. Yes. Phone booth. To report <laughs> the incident. By the way, I'm looking for a phone booth. I think they're really cool, but not for this. Okay. A car quickly picked him up and carried him to the station so he could record his statement about what happened to Edward Evans. Police went to Myra's house to question Ian. They found him there writing to his employee about his sprained ankle. They told him they were there because they heard that a disturbance involving guns had happened from some neighbors and they wanted to check it out. Which nothing happened with guns, but I think maybe they did that so they wouldn't give David away as the one who told what had, you know, something had happened. That was good. They asked if they could look around and Myra agreed. Once they came across the locked spare bedroom door, they asked for a key. Myra said it was at her workplace and she needed to retrieve it. The officers told her they would give her a ride, and Ian knew it was no use. He told her to hand it over. They looked inside and found the body of Evans. Ian told police that Eddie and him got into a fight, and things got out of hand. Oh, yeah, like hatchet I mean, I don't think they were going to get away with, like, oh, it's just at my office. I got to go get the key. Well, let's go get it. I'll take it down there now. I mean, there'd be no point. That's why I was like, you must might as well give it to them now. Yep. And, and then get caught. Self-defense. We were in a fight. Yeah. That's, that's always the first thing that I seems to, to happen. Yes. Self-defense. I had to do it. Wow. I hatcheted him. Even after he was dead. And that, I'm sure he kept on. Ian was arrested and taken down to the station. Myra wasn't, but insisted that she go along and even bring her dog. This is the first we've heard Puppet. of the dog. Right? Yeah. Puppet. How funny is this? I mean, these names and these actions... Because you manipulate puppets and manipulate each other, manipulate people. So her dog is puppet. Mm. She refused to make any statements about what had happened and just said it was an accident. She was free to go home as long as she returned the next day for more questions. She left. Just a few days later, she was arrested on October the 11th for being an accessory to the murder. Once the two were in custody, a search was done of their house. Inside, the officers found an old exercise book with John Kilbreed's name in it. Then they started to suspect that the duo may have been involved in other missing children's cases. David Smith mentioned to the police that Ian packed up a bunch of stuff in suitcases and hid them, although, and hid them, although he did not know where they were or what was inside them. He did tell police that Ian had a thing for train stations. Um... And they have places that people can keep things. Um, so they followed up on that and found some luggage left under his name. And the collection tag was found in Myra's Bible. In that suitcase was very crucial evidence of their crimes. There were costumes, notes, photographs of Leslie, and even an audio tape that was 16 minutes long of Leslie being tortured and screaming and asking to go home to her mother. Her mother had to listen and confirm that it was her daughter. And I think that's I, the lady I was watching. Yeah, I, and it was sad. I could not listen to audio of that. I couldn't that either. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't. Um, 
that would have been, oh, torture. And then to live with that. Once they got through with the house, they started asking the neighbors questions about the couple. Patricia Hodges was just 12 years old. She often went out with the couple to the moors to gather peat. Now, she traveled with them frequently. I mean, you got, but she also was their neighbor. Yeah. So I think the only reason that kept her alive was because yes. she was so close to them. If something happened to her, then they would have known. Yeah. Would have given them a reason to look into their background. Um. So, let's see. So, they... They would go take her out to the moors. Yeah. And then, like Melissa said, her being their neighbor, she went out with the police and showed them some of their favorite spots that they often stopped at. On October the 16th, they found an arm sticking out of the peat, and it was later confirmed to be Leslie Downing. In the stack of photographs, there were many pictures of the moor. Since Ian had stashed them, they needed to find the exact location of the pictures and asked for the public's help. On October the 21st, they found what was left of Kilbride. They continued to search for more bodies, but winter was approaching and they had to stop in November. With what evidence they had, Ian was charged with three murders. The murders of Leslie Downey, John Kilbride, and Edward Evans, all of which they had bodies for. Myra had been charged with murder for Downey and Kilbride and was an accessory to murder with Evans. Of course, they were suspected of many more deaths. Police were trying to date the photographs. Many of them featured Myra's dog, we learned his name is Puppet, <laughs> as a puppy. They got a veterinary surgeon to examine Puppet to determine how old he actually was. For this, he needed to be put under anesthesia. Sadly, the dog did not make it, and Myra was furious, so he died under anesthesia. It was one of the few times she showed any emotion. The trial began on April the 19th, 1966, and lasted for two weeks. Both of them pleaded not guilty and were questioned and cross-examined for hours. On May 6th, after just two hours, the jury found them guilty of all charges. The death penalty had been abolished, so they received the next harsh sentence of life imprisonment. Once they were locked up later... Um, they confessed to other murders of Reed and Bennett. It wasn't until 1987 that Reed's remains were discovered and they have never found Bennett's. They did not go back and try them for those murders as they were already serving life and it wouldn't have changed anything. But I think they did take them out to the moor on, on a couple of occasions, um, Myra and Ian separately, and tried to locate where Bennett and the bodies were. Okay. Um, Ian spent 19 years in mainstream prison before being diagnosed as a psychopath and moved to a mental facility. There, he often went on hunger strikes and asked repeatedly to be given the means to commit, commit suicide. He had no intentions of ever wanting to be released. Myra, on the other <laughs> hand, she tried everything to make her way out of being imprisoned. She applied for several appeals. She kept in contact with Ian through letters, but ended the relationship in 1977 because she had fallen in love with her prison guard, Patricia Cairns. She got her status changed to a different category of prisoners and was soon allowed to go on walks through the grounds. With the help of Patricia and some outside contacts, she had planned a prison escape. 
It was halted when the copied keys were intercepted by an off-duty police officer. Patricia got six years in prison for her part of the plan. On November 15, 2002, Myra was 60 and died from pneumonia. Before her death, she had written a bunch of letters about how Ian abused her physically and mentally and forced her to go along with him during these murders. She was so hated that over 20 local funeral homes refused to cremate her. Wow. Patricia scattered her ashes in, in Stalbridge, Staley Bridge, Bridge, Country Park, just 16 kilometers from Saddleworth Moor, where all of those horrible children were buried decades before. And I think they tried to scatter her ashes like at night and not have it publicly known because they were afraid people would go and like vandalize the, the nice park. Oh, knowing yeah. Knowing that she was buried somewhere out there. Yeah, that's, that would make sense if she was the most hated. So Ian, he kind of stayed out of the limelight and wasn't represented in the media after the events. Myra was always talking and writing letters and making the headlines, so the public began to label her as the most evil woman in Britain. But between the two, I think Ian was the was the one behind some of that, most of that stuff. Well, not saying she couldn't be manipulated and changed into the course of their spree or their yeah. time, but the fact that she raised money for her friend who died and then started going to church and then didn't want to kill the little girl in the beginning. Like, I, but then we I don't, don't know. We don't know how manipulative she was because the, the fact that she didn't want to kill the neighbor or, you know, the little girl in the beginning when Just we were reading the story might be because she knew they might get caught or because now she's at the end. She was wanting to be in the limelight. And one of the show's documentaries I watched which was on um, Prime, Amazon, <laughs> it said that they showed pictures of her with her dog Puppet over some of the graves of the um, children. Yeah, and she was posing for pictures, and they said that she was posing over those graves where they had been buried. So, I don't know, that stuck in my mind. And so, that makes me wonder, how can you, how can you do that? And you know that that's where they're buried. And she's smiling, yeah. holding her love, her beloved dog that died on the um, tables. So I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's definitely something to think about. Because, yes, I see with him being the psychopath and doing all those torture things. Um, but with her, you know, we just don't know. There could have been something more to her or it may have just changed her over time. And, but, um, she was definitely like the limelight. It reminds me of, um, I can't think of what her name was, but she was the one that liked to be kind of similar to Marilyn Monroe. What is her name? You know, I'm talking about, what are you talking about? <laughs> Y'all, you're going to know who I'm talking about. But, talking I mean, about a, a she's not a murderer. No, she just, what was her? Oh, Anna, Anna Nicole. Um, oh, and Nicole yeah. Smith. Yes, because she liked to be in the limelight. But she, was and, fond of, well, but, but she wasn't a criminal at all. But it just reminds me of people like that. That just for now we've gotten to the world of Instagram and influencer. influencer. Like, yeah, so who knows? Pictures and get into photography. And, but a lot of children hurt in this. A lot of families devastated by what sickness they chose to act out. Yes. Um, on human lives, and so. Just keep your family safe. Make sure. I mean, this was years ago, so it's, it's definitely continuing to go on. We just now we've got internet and computers and things that are above my 
pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to work. Yeah, so but we appreciate you being with us today and we hope you um, enjoyed this episode. Hope yes. that you'll come back next Remember, week. Remember, it'll be out on Thursdays now. Yes, out on Thursdays. Thank you for your understanding in that. And I'm Shannon, and I'll see you. Or you can listen to me <laughs> you next can listen week. To us, tell another story next week. Yep. Find us on Facebook. You can always email us oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. And just remember if you do the crime, it's going to catch up with you in time. And we'll talk about it.